Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. This is the chorus to Run the Jewels Just, and a song which asks us to recognize the truth about the portraits that have been in our wallets and purses this whole time. It's also what I thought of first, when I saw we had rolled the magic 120-sided die and it gave us the film we're discussing today, Dead Presidents. But while the song is an emphatic rejection of the injustices our country collectively ignores, and in some cases even canonizes, today's film takes place within three periods of this injustice. Moments, in places, which act as inflection points in our main characters' lives. There's a Bronx yet to be touched by the scourge of drugs while our characters here are young and hopeful, even if a Keith David character is omnipresent. There's the Vietnam conflict where innocence is lost, even though Keith David isn't even around. And then finally, a post-Vietnam Bronx, a home transformed, opportunities few, and a return to their pre-war lives impossible, where not even Keith David's character can fix this. At this point, our main characters become desperate and radicalized, and when your Keith David character can't fix your problems, it's time to blow shit up. And so for the purposes of our war movie podcast, in this war film, war is the inciting incident, a turning point that pivots the story into a genre-bending descent into slash heist film. And you don't have to watch the film to know that when your heist plan turns into a descent into situation, you should probably take your heist plan back to the drawing board, you guys. It's supposed to be a victimless crime. The money they're stealing was going to be destroyed anyway. Look at it. It's all wrinkly and gross. It's too old. And they weren't supposed to kill anyone either, but when you've included head in a backpack guy from Vietnam in your heist crew, chances are pretty good there's more than just cash that's going to end up in that bag. It is no surprise that the heist plan fails, and then the escape plan fails, and then there's this courtroom chair throwing at the end. In a lot of other films, this might be felt as a cathartic moment, one last revolutionary act before Anthony's story ends, but Hughes Brothers films don't have happy endings. When Anthony's prison bus pulls up outside the yard, the film ends there, where he could be seen as reflecting on what could have been. And as viewers, many of us may wonder the same. That's Uncle Sam for you. Money to burn. On today's Friendly Fire, Dead Presidents. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that needs to free up some space in our backpacks so we can keep some heads as souvenirs. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. That head is really starting to stink. I didn't get the head. I thought the half bob <laughs> would be like the grossest battlefield thing to experience <laughs> until I saw yeah. until Cleon became head guy. One eighth bob. Well, but there were yeah. also half bobs. Uh, in that battlefield scene, there was every kind of yeah. gross, like burned face and whatnot. I think the thing that I didn't get was not that Cleon went totally mental in country, but that then they came home and were like, you know who we should get involved in our bank heist is the guy that went, walked around the jungles of Vietnam with a severed head in his backpack. Yeah, I don't think... You can say that you're good at uh, creating and maintaining friendships if you're recruiting <laughs> Cleon for your mission here. <laughs> I did. I did feel like that there that the, it was pretty well established that Cleon was an effective fighter, an effective guy on the ground. So I could see in a situation like, like for instance, when I put a podcast together, I'm like, I don't want my smartest friend. I don't want my most dependable friend. I just mm. want the guys that week in, week out are going to say some stupid shit, get out of my way when I start talking. You know what I mean? Mm. I feel very seen. <laughs>
you think the mission is going to fail. And by mission, I mean the the bank truck heist mission is going to fail because of Cleon. It's it's sort of a uh, a fake out that it's not his fault. Well, isn't isn't it though? He fails to he fails to scare that cop away or find a find an excuse to get rid of the cop. It doesn't fail for reasons that you expect them to. Like he doesn't cut the cop's head off. Right. <laughs> what I'm interested in is that you guys in a 2-hour long film, you have jumped right to the heist. Like <laughs> leapfrogging an hour and 20 minutes worth of movie. To get to yeah. get to get to the six minute long heist sequence. I think that's demonstrative of of what a person would get out of this movie. Is this a war film or is it a heist film? I feel like my entire like I remember seeing ads for Dead Presidents on television or whatever, and I remember it was like I mean the the poster is like incredibly iconic. Yeah, name a more iconic poster. Yeah, I dare you. Um, <laughs> but. But then, like, I I rented this in college and was like, what the fuck is this Vietnam movie? Like, I can't believe that there's a Vietnam element to this. And it's really like a two-act structure, a, the yeah. rare film with a two-act structure where the first half is about one thing and the second half is about, like, all of the fallout from that thing. So it's the rare film, like, Full Metal Jacket or, or Deer Hunter. Sure. Yeah, well, I, I think Vietnam films are uniquely are more often like this than a lot of other war films. That's a good observation. I think that's true. I think that a big part of it is that we think of Vietnam as the war, you know, you, you go off to World War II and you come back changed, but the world didn't really change while you were gone. It was you mm -hmm. that changed. Well, and also like everybody didn't have to do Vietnam in the way that every, like, like World War II was a, like an all hands on deck experience for the country. So maybe maybe there's like more understanding in the civilian population when you come home. Yeah, right. There's it's the only it's the only war where you come home to a potentially hostile street life. But also in this in this movie you see a different kind of transformation than we see in a lot of war movies where the you know the corn-fed American kid goes away and then he comes back and his friends are all hippies. <laughs> because in this scene where you know we're seeing what it's like in the North Bronx and the difference between, you know, what ha what happened in the black community in the United States between 1965 and 1975. I mean, a complete transformation that is not really like the the hippie Berkeley uh, switcheroo that happened. This film does a great job in giving you a couple establishing shots of that, right? Like we float over aunt early in the movie and we see this vibrant community of of you know people playing the numbers but also like people are getting by and getting over in their way but when we come back to this very same block after aunt returns from vietnam it's basically like burn barrels in the street it's pretty bleak hold, hold, hold a sec. Yeah, keep the meter running it's not just a lack of opportunity like that anthony feels it's like you can see it Right. But there's also like other there's there's black liberation, which when he went away, didn't exist as far as he understood. And he comes back to a world where that's now a factor. Uh, when he went away, there was not presumably like he was not competing against any guys with big furry hats and um, and chrome plated 45s. Uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden, like that, that's one of his main competitors, you know, like the the social world, his social world has changed as much as as anything in the movie. I thought it was interesting that that wasn't cowboy when he comes back. Like the local neighborhood alpha male is not like a guy that we knew before he left. Kind of felt like they were setting cowboy up to be a, a kind of to go from being a clown to being the real the real deal. Right, but cowboy stays a clown. Yeah. <laughs> like he's he still sucks at pool when when uh when Ant returns. Yeah, what did he do with all that time? He definitely didn't practice pool. Or fighting. Yeah. <laughs> there was no no competition. He seemed like the big dog because everybody left. Yeah, you don't get better playing pool by yourself, I guess. I, I feel like Cowboy is an example of, of where this movie kind of missed a few opportunities. And one of them was, yeah, for instance, Cowboy is set up to be a 
pivotal figure. And yeah. he's being played by like an incredibly striking and beautiful and talented actor. Right. And in the in the final accounting, all he's there to do is is uh you know, be a like a one dimensional figure that that allows um that allows Anthony to be transformed. It felt like there was a lot left unresolved there and the re- the resolution yeah it didn't feel like the it didn't resolve it just felt like the resolve was too shallow i mean there's like a million directions you could take that character like he winds up also in the unit in vietnam like chris tucker did or he uh is is a much more like dominant crime figure in the inter- intervening years because also like i think that it's easy to forget how long Anthony was away. Like he didn't do one tour and then get done. Well, can't you look me in my eyes? I ain't seen you in four years. Who is the bad guy in this movie is a question that I thought a lot about as I was watching. I had expected, uh, I I loved Menace to Society and and so I had I'd never seen this movie before and I and I stepped to it expecting I think a quality that I got but I also expected a fair amount of like uh white guys the enemy in this movie and this is a fairly restrained film in what it chooses to make its bad guys right I I would argue yeah. Cuddy is Maybe the heavy here, if there even is one, it, it it almost feels like it's without a heavy. I think the the like race commentary in this is so much less you know central in your experience of watching it. Like it's commenting on the Vietnam War through just putting a black character at the center of the film because like we just don't have that many films about what it was like for a black guy to go off to the war. We have a lot of peripheral black characters kind of speaking to that in other films, but or even central black characters, but we don't get to, we don't get that arc that we were describing earlier where we start with them as kids and, and then come right. back to them having a hard time integrating. I'm wondering if you felt the same way though. Like at the end we get, we get the white judge judging our main character and he's also Martin Sheen <laughs> and we get a scene of rage where Ant throws his chair at him. And I wonder if if you're not white me, you see that as a moment of that I couldn't, you know, if you see that as a moment of triumph. Oh, I don't think so. Or or as a moment of, of like finally pushing back. Even in that moment, I mean the film the film pulls I don't, I'm not going to say punches, but the film isn't clear about who the heavy is because even in that moment, what Martin Sheen says is, I was a Marine. Don't give me that you were a Marine hero baloney. Right. And so even in that moment, there's at least in the dialogue one degree of separation. If you're trying to make the case that that the, the enemy, the, the bad guy in the movie is white society or the United States of America that chews up black kids or whatever. There's Martin Sheen could be a lot more. He could make that point in a different way. But what he does is he says, I was a Marine and he could have said that to, to a defendant of any race that was trying to say, Hey, go, go lenient on me because I'm a decorated Marine. Right. The film is making the case there that, I mean, that's in a way kind of an indictment of Curtis, I mean, of Anthony, right? I mean, that his attorney would try to make that, but give him that escape card. What, <laughs> like, it's interesting that our main character is, uh, by the end, I, I expected this to be a story where he was a victim and victimized, but by the end of the film, I didn't feel that way. And I did not expect the film to to present this character like that. The understood, and in a way, like, like weirdly, it's not given the exclamation point that you would expect that it w- that a heavy, more heavy-handed film would do, making the explicit connection between the fact that America is a white supremacist country and the, and that 
Anthony can't get a job and that he's forced into the bank robbery by not just by the fact that times are hard and he makes bad choices, but because it's inevitable that, you know, that no one can get over unless they either turn to drug dealing, pimping, whoring or crime. But a lot of that is a lot of that punch is pulled because we spend a lot of time in this movie in a kind of domestic soap opera. We are also convinced that Anthony is extremely capable and hardworking guy, you know, who like avoids all the pitfalls of his friends and has a job as a freaking butcher. The movie takes a really long time to both give us the sense that he is really damaged and also to make the heist seem like a choice that he would choose. Like they're casing the the bank for the heist like pretty early in that second act. And it and it felt like what the like he's got a job. Like why why is he why is he casing a bank right now? Like he hasn't got his back up against the wall or anything. And then over the course of that uh of of the rest of the film, he does feel more and more like he's got his back up against the wall and he does start to have like nightmares and seem more and more psychologically damaged. Yeah, that nightmare scene does a lot of heavy lifting in the middle of this movie because he still because the thing about Lorenz Tate is he's a handsome and very sweet-faced person. You like him immediately when you see him and then you continue to like him and and he's he does a good job acting in the in the latter half of the movie where you start to see pain on his face. But that nightmare scene I've never quite seen anything like it uh, where it's like a Bruegel painting. It's really a goulash of nightmarish images that's meant because it's the first thing of its kind in the movie. Yeah. And up until that point, it's like, yeah, he does drink a little bit. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no. (laughs) Imagine waking up next to somebody that just had that dream. Yeah, right. (laughs) You're like, it's okay, honey. It's not okay. (laughs) It's the furthest it could be from okay. Getting the job in the butcher does like keep him exposed to the bloody imagery, you know? Yeah. And us too. Yeah. My best cut, Mrs. Stein. Enjoy. The ambiguity of what good and what's evil kind of pervades the whole film and, and most of the characters, right? I think in a lot of war movies, you have safe harbors with people. You know, either you go through a PTSD experience and you wake up with a loving wife uh, who is with you to the end, or you have, you know, a father who went to Korea and was a soldier and might and might understand what you're going through. But here, like, there are no safe harbors, right? Because the, I don't think we we see the parents very much after he returns from Vietnam. He he scarfs down his dinner, his mom asks a couple of questions and he doesn't want to talk about it. Even Kirby isn't that guy because the safety that Kirby provides also comes with a heist or a job yeah. or something. A lot of strings attached to Kirby's friendship. That helps keep this tension throughout the film. You never feel safe with anyone. You're always suspicious of even the people who are supposed to care about you. Yeah, I, maybe that's the utility that Cowboy is meant to play is just to like, even a guy that you beat in pool is potentially going to pull a knife on you in the environment that Anthony inhabits. I think some of the confusion about the movie's viewpoint is that when Anthony comes back and Delilah has become radicalized, we have set up now a, a, like an obvious sort of point counterpoint in the film, right? That she is... Uh, part of a black liberation movement. Anthony has no experience with it and he's kind of repelled by it at first. And you see in the community in the North Bronx that there's an inkling, right? That the black liberation is becoming a movement, but it's not a mainstream movement. You don't see any of the, the main characters really embracing it. It seems like a fringe kind of mentality or, or, cloak yeah and so the the film kind of gives you a teaser like this is what's going to transform anthony this is what's going to kind of focus the whole question of why was there a disproportionate number of black soldiers in the war we keep hearing this refrain that it's a white man's war why are you fighting it all of that is going to get funneled into this 
this sort of conflict between the black liberation movement and Anthony, it's going to pull at his heart, you know? Right. There are like elements of revolutionary movements that make the case that like any crime you commit in this evil society that we're trying to destroy is justified. So like it could, it could have taken it in that direction. Like this bank heist is like a righteous act by a guy whose life was ruined by the racist country he lives in, but he doesn't, he never seems to embrace the ideology fully. Like he doesn't and the movie doesn't. And what's curious is that this, the, the events depicted here are based on a real bank heist that was really performed by an, by the actual black liberation army in conjunction with some other sort of communist, um, like weather underground types. And it was explicitly that, right? It was explicitly a, a heist that was declared within the movement as a righteous heist because they were liberating the money from the, from the white oppressor. And I mean, in the end, all the people that were in the, that were convicted kind of stood in the courtroom, refusing to acknowledge the, the um, sovereignty of the United States of America. I mean, it was a super duper political. Was there a chair throw? I'm not sure. I think actually, I think there were at least one of the people when sentenced to life in prison refused to attend the court proceedings, you know, because they refused to recognize the authority. And the judge went on record saying, I don't see any good served by having them in the courtroom. A snarkier quote than that as he sentenced him to life. I wonder if that part was taken out of the film because like they wanted to get major distribution for it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the source material has all that politics in it. And because Anthony never fully embraces that cause, it's never clear within the movie itself whether the Black Liberation Movement is taken very seriously or whether it's considered whether the movie itself kind of considers it nonsense, right? Delilah joins the heist, but she ends up like going, going full psycho. Um, you know, and when she dies, it's not like, it's not like we mourn the movement. We just mourn the little girl. Right. The movie could have decided that it was going to be, that it was going to embrace that black liberation ar argument to justify the heist, or it could have, critiqued that movement but instead it was just kind of like it was there in the room which is weird consider considering that the that the that the ripped from the headlines element of this movie was like hyper political one of the one of the super political bank heists of that era i kind of feel like it would have been a poison pill for the box office though if in 1995 you made a movie about how like some badass black liberation people knocked over a Brinks truck. Having been there in 1995, if there was ever a time in American history where you could make a movie that was unapologetically <laughs> um, liberationist in that way, you know, like portraying black Panthers or, or uh, black liberation in a, in a positive light, 1995 would have been it. But also like we've, we've seen a lot of movies that kind of, happen in this window that feel like they are trying to inhabit a post-racial America. And this, this definitely does not feel like it's coming from the same place as your uh, Denzel Washington movie where he plays an FBI guy whose blackness is not an aspect of his character as far as the movie is concerned. Yeah, right. It's, it is the counterpoint to that. Adam, you were talking about Martin Sheen scolding him in the courtroom. You know, my my head immediately went to a like imagining like what a Martin Sheen came home to when he got home from his war. And it feels very outrageous that he's making this kind of, you know, he's making this very like um, paternalistic assessment of of Anthony's character from the bench when he doesn't know shit about Anthony's life and what Anthony has actually been through. Have you ever been to court? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do. Do you get to claim extenuating circumstances when a bunch of bank truck guys have been shot in the face a half a dozen times? No, I don't think so either. That's the problem. There's like, I'm sorry that I got involved in this like 
card game racket or this numbers running thing because I'm trying to provide for my family. But like I, I was part of a bank heist where six cops got shot in the face. It's not really like, hey, go go easy on him. He was a war hero. You know, there are li- there are lines. If it had placed the like part of the motivation for the heist more centrally in the like black liberation, like we're gonna do this and then you know use the money to like protect our neighborhood or feed kids or something that's an indictment of the community that he comes from and that's not what this movie feels like it's trying to be it's it's more just a it's a descent into movie it's a it's a movie about how a guy who had a lot of a lot going for him but came from a from tough circumstances like played the cards he was dealt wrong yeah, but that and that's what's weird about it, right? Because his descent isn't really we're not given if you're going to take the politics out of it, which let, let's let's assume that 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 was a move the filmmakers made to st- try and stay safe, right? Don't put don't foreground Black Panthers in this movie. Let's make it more general. But what we get then is a is like a guy struggling to be in the middle class and he's got some PTSD. But some of the big issues in his life are that his girlfriend, mother of his children, has another boyfriend, maybe. Right. Um, and that boyfriend comes by and gives money to her because he's like some kind of benefactor pimp. But but that isn't <laughs> but that's not set up within the movie as a sociopolitical commentary. It's set up in the movie as like a male competition issue. And so that kind of takes away a lot of the import of it, and it makes it just seem like it's a pissing match between two dudes, which, again, like robs the the descent into hell narrative of some of its power because it's like, were you really like on the skids or were you just trying to compete with a pimp for your girlfriend's affections and you're not treating her very well because you're a drunk with PTSD, but none of this, it, you know, considering what was happening in the Bronx at that time, where you've got junkies everywhere, you've got police brutality, the city is burning, there's, you know, people are starving for all intents and purposes. They're inventing hip hop. They're inventing hip hop or about to. I mean, it also robs the movie of the of the criti- critique of the war because, like, I mean, we've we've got the opportunity to really dig into this is a white man's war where we have no beef with the Viet Cong. Like we're just trying to, we've got our own problems domestically kind of conversations, but they never get past that. Right. Right. And, and perhaps because a, it's an impossibly big topic to take on without taking, without presenting a viewpoint. It was what made uh, do the right thing. Such a, a big movie in its moment, which was that Spike Lee had a viewpoint. It was just not clear to a white audience what that viewpoint was. That was right. what was so shocking about that movie. This movie didn't come up with a viewpoint because the heist feels undercooked also. Like you were saying, the poster is iconic and that face paint is amazing, but we're only giving a, given a little foreshadowing of it uh, when they were Marines and kind of putting on their Marine face camo, but there's no, the, the film gives us no insight into how it is that these bank robbers, rather than just wear masks uh, or like pantyhose over their heads, how it was that they came to have the most striking and cool <laughs> bank robbery face mat face yeah. paint that anyone's ever seen. And it's like, where did that come from? Like, which one of the five of you is like some genius makeup artist? <laughs> we, we don't get the Batman suiting up scene where they're getting ready. Never leave the cave without it. Right. And where somebody's like, you know what we should do? We should use all this extra like grease paint that I had from the community theater days. Like there's a reason <laughs> that Skip and Cleon are put out on the block instead of in the dumpsters. It's because they refuse to wear the face paint. <laughs> <laughs> But like, yeah, all the planning that we get for the heist is just that scene where we've got some streets drawn on a piece of cardboard and he's put some quarters around and he actually in the process of talking about the heist to the 
to everybody. He's like, okay, you stand here, you stand here, you stand here, you stand here. And we've gone over the actual heist a bunch of times, so we don't need to do that right now. <laughs> right. Like he says it in the film. The like, Italian whoa, 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 jab, this ain't. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, you guys might have gone over it, but yeah. I, I think we should see too what the plan is. The film sails into the heist fully confident that it's a, a fully baked plan. And it is not. <laughs> it's not. And, and, we, and we're given all this evidence like, oh, wait, this is a really ragtag bunch of people and something's going to go sideways here. But there are so many movies with a heist at the center where the heist goes wrong. And a lot of other movies have done it where you felt you felt more a part of it and more invested in it when it starts to go haywire. Well, I wonder if the heist seems like it's supposed to be at the center of this movie because that's the way the movie was marketed. Because to me, this is a movie about Vietnam and the way it ruined this guy's life. I feel like Anthony had a good time in Vietnam. Uh, he succeeded there. He succeeded, was a, was decorated and got promoted. Unlike Skip, who the whole time is is wanting out and kind of, you know, dragging his feet. Anthony w was very reluctant to go home. And so in a way, the movie kind of makes an argument that going home from Vietnam is what fucked up mm -hmm. Anthony. Cause when he, when he shows up on the, on the block, the day he gets back, he's the, the tightest one of anybody in the, in the whole neighborhood. Like he's got confidence and pride and it's just reintegrating. That is the, integrating into a world that didn't exist when he left. Isn't it interesting how like the case that he makes to skip in Vietnam is that like by not thinking about anything or anyone but himself there, it allows him to survive his crazy circumstances during war. But when he returns home, what does he do? He's got to provide for Juanita. He's got to think about his daughter once all of these other concerns creep into his head, that's when he's in great danger, right? right. There's my film paper. Bam. <laughs> hey, boom. I was waiting for that, Adam. There's a lot of gore that feels just, just sort of thrown in there where the camera typically does not zoom in on someone's, on someone's mandible where the flesh has been burned away. But the actual war stuff was... Uh, was a pretty good war movie, I thought. Yeah, it had kind of almost like a Mel Gibson-y quality when, when, when we were seeing action, like that you could tell that they really cared about like making that exciting and visually as arresting as it could be. Yeah, it, it didn't have that Forrest Gumpy thing where you're like, oh, we're in this movie and now we're in the Vietnam part and it feels just as kind of goofy as as the sally field part i may be like making this up but does it feel like there are a zillion examples of a vietnam combat scene in a movie where we're in the jungle but then they get back out to the ruins of a church and take cover there while they wait for their helicopters to come it's the platoon yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like Forrest Gump might have a scene like that also. Like when he's saving all those guys. What's going on with that? A lot of churches, man. A lot of ruined churches in Vietnam. Yeah, it's such a great visual metaphor that no no filmmaker can step away from it. <laughs> Speaking of of tropey visual Vietnam War metaphors, this film saves the water buffalo and does not hack it to bits. Oh, yeah. Did you feel like this film right. was talking to Apocalypse Now in that scene? The bombs go off in the background and the water buffalo escapes in the foreground? thought that was neat. Like, look, man, you don't need to kill a water buffalo to make a good Vietnam movie. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you can get some somewhere else. So what's the matter with you? You act kind of weird. The, uh, the bank that they knock over or attempt to knock over is uh, like six blocks from my old apartment in Greenpoint. Whoa. Really? What is that building actually? It's just some warehouses. The door that they that they had there, I think, was uh, was put up by yeah by up. the prop department or by the by the set dressers. But um, that door actually caught the attention of an internet pedant. Would you guys like to hear a moment of pedantry? <laughs> yes. Time. At the bank doors on the dock, 
The soundtrack implies metal doors being unlocked and opened slash closed. The door opens and you can see that there are no bolts. It has a deadbolt, but nothing on the door edge suggesting an opening. At the top edge of the door, it looks almost wood-like. The door did not even lock or have a doorknob channel. Wow. Door pedant. Come on, filmmakers. (laughs) Guy sounds like a real dork. (laughs) Oh! Did you guys get the sense that that armored truck had a lot of gasoline in it in addition to <laughs> money <laughs> that was quite a gas gas ball it had money and solvents inside <laughs> i thought that that was such a great character choice that the guy was just like so excited about how big the explosion was and was completely yeah. off the scent of they're gonna get some money well, yeah, because he was the one that was at that point like so high on speed that he had lost the. Yeah. You know, what, what did we have in that heist team? We had a we had a speed addict, a heroin addict, a booze hound, a guy you know a psycho that has become a a Christian. That's the opiate of the masses. A black liberation, uh, uh, like teen girl, <laughs> and then a and and then a one legged guy. Is Kirby the the most normal one of all of them? I, I think Kirby qualifies as a problem drinker. Right. <laughs> he's making bad, bad choices. Plus, he's yeah. the one that should be, you know, he should he should be the adult role model here. Hmm. I, I, I would I do think that that uh, heist scene is notable for the fact that for the most part, it's the only time in the movie where we see white people um, other than the other than the lieutenant in the in the squad in Vietnam. Well, we get Seymour Castle's butcher character, which I think is significant. Oh, right, right, right. And the white cop that gets paid off by uh, at the beginning. But that's, yeah, very, very few and far between. Does your movie have two or more white people talking to each other about something mm. other than the heist that's no. about to happen on them? <laughs> that's the bank tail test? <laughs> In this case... All of a sudden, you're struck by the fact that one, two, three, four, five different people are are like middle aged white men, and it's and it stands out. You can almost see very briefly uh, from the perspective of the people within the film how ugly middle aged white cops are. <laughs> like, yuck! Oh wow! Yeah, you're definitely like rooting for the heist, right? In a way, you're not rooting against it for sure. It doesn't. It's not clear if they pull this heist off what what they're how they're going to keep from. It's like the Lufthansa heist in Goodfellas. You almost know for a certainty that if they get away with the money, it's going to bring ruination upon each one of them. You're going to watch them die one after another from this money. I'm going to take the other side of that argument. I, I'm not rooting for the heist. And the reason why is it's, it's the black officers, the first to die. He like, that's the thing that starts the whole thing off. And that's the awful tone setter for, for the failed mission. It, it fails before it begins because that guy's the first to go. He's like the most helpful cop in the history of cops. You just like <laughs> ache for him. Be- and God, think about that scene. He's alive so long in that scene. That's the worst part. He's just right. there and helping and waiting. And you're wondering which one of the main characters is going to be the one to do the awful thing. But before he saunters around the corner and starts offering to radio in for the bus schedule, you want the heist to go down without a hitch right you want them to get away with the million dollars i want kirby and ant to to have the shawshank redemption ending right and and like this movie doesn't have a lot of depictions of like the cops that are uh dangerous and a problem to have an interaction with if you're you know a a black kid in the North Bronx in the 70s this version is they are a big problem if you're trying to rob a bank truck too nice cop is not the uh, <laughs> is not the Hughes brothers uh, signature. I think my I think my problem with the movie is that I struggled to to have a takeaway personally. The movie doesn't give you a very clear viewpoint 
And so in the end, I wasn't sure whether to be happy, sad, angry, um, thrilled. I kind of wandered through the movie. I thought a lot watching it about our previous film, Path to War, and how, I mean, that that movie was, you know, the 30,000 foot experience of the same the same war, the president trying to get the uh, equal rights amendment passed and feeling like the Vietnam War is a a distraction in the way of that. This this is the you know the super zoom in on the ground, and I thought they were kind of an interesting double feature because when you get to the the zoomed in view of the guy on the ground who goes off to Vietnam like the decisions being made at the presidential level seem so impossibly far away at that point, like minor decisions that like, okay, yeah, like let's go from, you know, seemingly minor decisions. Like let's, let's like uh, go ahead and pass this uh, omnibus spending bill that will enable us to keep doing the war and like failing to calculate how ruinous that is to how many lives, uh, you know, in, in reality, like the, like the the level of abstraction that they were dealing with in Path to War really hit me in a new way seeing this one. Yeah, I I I think that's maybe the best thing about doing this show is um to watch the Path of War and then this movie and try to try to uh put them together in the same not just cinematic universe but in the actual universe where we live. You marvel at it. You do. Yeah. <laughs> But but it's interesting how to how to maintain a consistent uh, worldview or viewpoint just as a as a film watcher from one film to the next. It's it's hard to accept a muddled viewpoint on its own um, terms because we've seen so many films that are talking about so many of this so many of the issues in this movie that if the movie leaves it to us to fill in the blanks. And I think that may be part of part of what's happening here. I do think that the mid nineties was a period in certainly in like black cinema, young black cinema where the, the Hughes brothers may have expected the audience to fill in some socio-political blanks. Right. You've seen enough Vietnam films. You've seen enough Spike Lee films. Right. And particularly like, if you're a if you're a black film goer, you're going to come into this already knowing a lot of the 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 sociological stuff right. that is informing these characters and the choices they make. So they are you know so they're saying in 1995 you can go into this movie and we're not going to have we're not going to have to explicitly say some of the things. Right. But the problem is in 2020 the cinema world and the sociopolitical worlds are not so condensed and not so single, single minded. Certainly we've seen so many Vietnam movies that you, if you just hand us a kind of half filled in crossword puzzle and say, you guys know it's like Vietnam and the Bronx, you know, just fill in the blanks. It's like, <laughs> no, I don't know. We just watched a movie about Lyndon Johnson and McGeorge Bundy. Yeah, that movie tragically not enough about McGeorge Bundy. I would have I would have loved for there to have to, to have been a scene where they're you know heading out out to an, another deployment in some jungle and they're on the back of a truck that gets caught in a traffic jam and they look down and there's Robin Williams with Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> <laughs> Forrest Whitaker's like guys. Guys, guess who I've got right here? Like, imagine Chris Tucker <laughs> giving a fuck about that. <laughs> if all of these films had been made 20 years later, we'd be talking about a Vietnam cinematic universe, right? Right. Oh. Right. We need to write a Forrest Gump-like Vietnam movie that where our... Oh, that ties them all together? <laughs> yeah, our main character meets every single... He meets Kurtz. He, he walks meets, through a scene in Hamburger Hill. Yeah, Charlie Sheen goes by, and we just digitally insert all those 
other people because Vietnam was not that big of a country and there weren't really that many people there. <laughs> Pretty good idea, I think. Our main character dies at the end by going down the incinerator in heaven and earth. <laughs> I mean, spoiler alert, I don't want to ruin this movie before we write it, but. Right. <laughs> it's rating and review time on Friendly Fire, which means we need a rating system to then review this film. That's the order of operations, right? Yeah. Everyone knows that. Why do I keep explaining it? I explain it every time because it might be a person's first time listening to the show, right? Either it's their first time or they just like the rhythm of the podcast. Like there's kind of oh, yeah. some reassurance to the to the pattern. There's there's comfort in format. <laughs> there aren't many fun slash funny moments in this film, but Kirby's explanation for beating the shit out of that guy outside of his restaurant being he grabbed the wrong leg. <laughs> I thought was great. Uh and it really endeared me to Kirby. It made me it made me want to uh to be with him through Ant. Like I saw him as as someone who would make our main character safe, right? He's he's older, he's a veteran, he kicks ass, he's funny. Like there aren't many sources of oxygen in this movie, but I think Kirby is really one of them. He's dangerous the way that most characters in this film are, but I don't feel like he is unpredictably dangerous. He grabbed the wrong leg. That's why he got his ass kicked. Like, it's cause and effect. <laughs> and he's not embarrassed by the wounds he endured in the Korean War, right? It's that that shopkeeper grabbed the wrong leg, pulled it off of him, and it enraged him. It didn't embarrass him. It was almost like an empowering moment to him. And I wonder if that if the if the fake leg isn't the best rating system for dead presidents because like while our our main characters come back from Vietnam with all of their legs, it's the legs in their minds that are missing. Damn. Wow. There's a couple of ways that you see people survive this war, right? You either come back with without something like Kirby's leg or you come back with something like like Skip's Agent Orange disease, which we didn't talk too much about, which was a huge factor in how incapable he was in returning to any kind of normal life. He couldn't be a pimp after the war anymore. Nothing was working. So when the film comes back from the war what the film loses is the hope of a better future, the hope of getting over, the hope of equality that I think the film left to go to war with. So on a scale of one to five of Kirby's fake legs, <laughs> let's review Dead Presidents. I I like a heist film. I might, I might even love a heist film. And I especially love a heist gone wrong film. And when I think about this film in those terms, I might like it more than, than what it is as a war film. But I like my heroes dead at the end of heist films. And the ending of this film is unsatisfying that on the one hand, like good filmmakers are very self-aware of giving you an unsatisfying ending. It's one of the reasons I recoil from a Spielberg ending. Like, don't tie this up in a nice bow at the end. Fuck that. Give me the ambiguity. Let me think about things for myself. And I think, I think, I don't know if we did that. I don't believe that we did this, but I think there is a version of watching this movie where you see what the Hughes brothers don't give you at the end. And you're like, well, this is intentional. I'm not going to give you the entire meaning of the thing. You should you should go and figure that out for yourself. But there's another viewer that sees this as an incomplete story, a a film with less of a message. And it just depends on what you're projecting onto it. I think you could make the case either way. Like among the things that this film really gets right are, I love how it looks. We didn't talk very much about it, but all of the colors and the textures of the neighborhood that Ant and Kirby live in, I think are, are beautiful. That, that basement pool room with the back room where they count the money, like all of these, all of these scenes 
feel very at home in a Scorsese film, right? And I think they are as beautifully captured as a Scorsese film. I really think that. And I think the war, the war scenes are, as Ben was saying, uh, super capably captured and horrifying. I think mid to late 90s gore has a particular quality that shocks a modern viewer. And I don't think that for its time, this was super duper out of place. This is a run of horror films that that really relished in in the maggoty kind of gore that this film gives you. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna gonna cap on it for for showing us the maggots. I thought that was just part of a mid '90s quality of film. But I love how it looks. I love the soundtrack. What a great soundtrack! I would buy this soundtrack in a heartbeat. It's so good. Uh, but man, it's so hard to decide the intent of a filmmaker. And if you and if you think the intent is to let you figure it out, I think it's a high scoring, lots of legs film. But if you think you like your films more with more of a Shawshank Redemption ending, and and you feel like this film just refused to give it to you in a spiteful kind of way, then I don't think this works for you. I think I don't think I've made up my mind about it. I think I'm going to give it three point eight legs. That's just the confused scoring of of someone who might need more time to think about it. The, this conversation about it was was great, and I think it argued both sides of that idea, but it didn't convince me either way. You know what? The episode is a lot like the film in that way to me. Still couldn't decide. Mm, a little ambiguity at the end. Yeah. I think I'm a little less charitable about it than you Adam because I to me this feels like it maybe started life in the script as a more specific statement and the ways it feels unclear to me smell like meddling by the studio or punches that were pulled because they were concerned that they wouldn't be able to sell a story like this to white audiences and like this is something that the studios have have done for time immemorial which is like not not believe that stories with black characters at their centers will be appealing to non-black audiences and Ben you know what's fucked up though is that like Menace to Society was a huge hit and it yeah. and, and like most film directors who come onto the scene with a massive splash like that get the blank check second film to go and make exactly what they want. Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. is an example of this. Like he made Boogie Nights as his second movie. And what is more repulsive to a mainstream audience than than a <laughs> film about 70s pornography? Like why didn't why didn't the Hughes brothers get that same kind of Make whatever you want. You proved you could be great with Menace to Society. Yeah. Like, w I wish we knew more about whether or not there was meddling. I think that it's the, the 1995 is the one year that, that that's a hard accusation to level. It's like the peak of 90s black cinema. I mean, this was the, this was the heart of um, the real black experience finally being put onto film in film after film after film. So, I, I mean, I see, I hear what you're saying about it, but, but, um, and I'm I'm sorry to Adam and I are jumping in on your review portion. Yeah, that's that's not fair. Uh, no, it's a it's a conversation, and I th I think that I think that that's it's hard to know because I I didn't find a lot of like documentation of studio meddling as as far as I know. I don't know for sure that that's where it came came from. Maybe maybe it's entirely internal to the Hughes brothers. They said to themselves. Well, we could make a, a you know, movie about a bunch of pinko revolutionary ex Vietnam veteran black guys knocking over a, a Brinks truck and run the risk of being a marginal film, or we could make something that's got more mainstream appeal. Like that could have been, you know, it could it could have come from their own heads uh, as well. I'm I'm not sure, but it does. It does feel to me like a movie that had an opportunity to make a big statement and winds up feeling like it didn't make a statement. And it's also just a bummer. It's like such a fucking sad movie. I, I, 
am personally just I have a really hard time with descent into as a genre. <laughs> like I did not like Breaking Bad at all. And uh, I, I, I tend not to like movies that follow that trajectory. And I think that like that trajectory exists in the world. And I understand why art ex- about it exists, but it's a, uh, it's just not my favorite way to spend a couple of hours. So uh, I'm going to give this one a, a two and a half prosthetic legs. Rough. Is that the socket half or the, uh, or the foot half? Oh, like the above or the below the knee? Yeah. Or I guess you could mm-hmm. just bifurcate it down, down the middle. Like a goat head. Like the, like the <laughs> horn of Gondor? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's important to be clear on these ratings. Yeah. Uh, I'll, give it, um, I'll give it the above the knee half, but also like half of a goat head. All right. Uh, well, in answer to some of these questions, Menace to Society had a budget of three and a half million. And this, the Hughes Brothers' second film, uh, had a budget of ten million. They did bump up by almost two thirds in terms of the money they were using, or money they had to play with. But I think the, in looking at it, for me, the the one of the salient factors is that the Hughes Brothers made Menace to Society when they were twenty two years old, and then turned around and made Dead Presidents when they were 24 years old. And in wow. attempting to make uh, attempting to make a movie as their, you know, their second film, they're sitting there the two of them with their notepad and they're like, "Let's make a sweeping epic about the black experience in Vietnam and what happens when they come back to the Bronx and find society falling apart and we're going to use as source material this black Liberation Army heist of a Brinks truck, but we don't want to make it like a like a, a super political movie because it's going to be a adventure and a heist movie, and, and you can just hear them making this movie in their heads. But they're twenty four, and it got away from them. They just didn't have the they didn't have the skills at that age to make what they were attempting to make and given what they made it's an amazing accomplishment that at 24 you could put even though there are two of you so technically you're actually 40 48 just imagine being 24 and being tasked with directing keith david (laughs) (laughs) i mean i mean i at 24 years old i kept having to be reminded that i had to go to work today by my boss calling me and saying you were supposed to be here 20 minutes ago. I don't think Hollywood gives $10 million to 24 year olds very often. And this film looks beautiful. It's got a lot of, you know, pretty great acting in it. A lot of overacting, but some great acting and great. You know, the, the, the sets are great. The, they really do capture the feel of the Bronx in 1970, which is a, which is a Bronx they absolutely like did not know personally um, because they were, they weren't even born in 1970. But I think all the flaws that we've pointed out are just because this was, it was too ambitious. And what, what made menace to society successful was that it was, it focused on a very small universe and they were able to, to completely flesh it out. And they just weren't able to address everything they were trying to. And what's crazy for me is given the complexity and disproportionate scale of the black experience in Vietnam, that there, although Platoon is a movie that has like a majority or at least a, like a, a black cast that is proportionate, it's told through the eyes of the white kid and all the, you know, all the main officer characters are white or the, 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 the NCO characters are white. There's not a black Vietnam movie. And Spike Lee's got one coming out right now to five bloods is in the pipeline. But can you imagine over the last 50 years that there's not really ever been a successful movie exploring that perspective? 
not that there's just one perspective, but just from that viewpoint, pick a viewpoint, just make everybody, just make it the black story. Astonishing to me that the, that that hasn't happened. And thank God that Spike Lee has chosen to go there. Even if he, you know, even if he makes a hash of it. (laughs) Um, And I look forward to seeing that, but I agree. I just felt like this, this film was probably five different, pretty interesting films. It could, this movie could have been any one of those five interesting films and I would have been into it. But it was all five of those films not really um, fully explored. I didn't come out of it with more questions than I went into it with. I came out of it with a collection of images, which isn't quite enough. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, I'm gonna go right there with with Ben. I think. Where were you? Two point eight. Two point five. But I, I tossed a, a half a goat head. I'm going to do 2.5 <laughs> legs and the other half of the goat head. Well, uh, only whole guys are permitted in the nomination of, of who your guy might be. Ben, who's your guy? I, I think it's going to be Cowboy. I think I would be the guy that does not get any better at pool in the intervening years. <laughs> but also just, I mean, Terrence Howard is so beautiful in this movie. He's an alluring character despite being so scary and he's like a loser and he sucks and yet he's like so <laughs> you're so drawn to him whenever he's on screen it's like such a such a weird kind of guy to be in a movie like let's have like the the prettiest guy in the movie be a dangerous loser <laughs> he has a face like the velvet jesus painting that looks like the eyes are following you around the room he's yeah. Like he looks lit, like professionally lit at all mm-hmm. times in that way. Cowboy, my guy. Uh, my guy comes from, God, you know, now that I think about it, maybe the, the second fun slash funny scene in the movie is uh, Skip and Ant are, uh, are wearing Santa hats. They're giving, uh, they're giving toys to the neighborhood kids. Uh, you know, one thing that goes fairly unremarked on is Chris Tucker in this movie and what a whirlwind he is. Uh, how much energy a young Chris Tucker had at this moment in time really, really gives a lot to this film and his performance. Um, but that scene where they, they've popped the trunk and they're giving the toys away, uh, the kids are allowed to go into the trunk and pick out their own toy. And I think it's a huge mistake you can sense that something bad is going to happen in this scene and you get the payoff when there's a kid who goes into the trunk and grabs a bottle instead of a toy. That little kid is my guy. (laughs) He knows what he's not allowed to have and he goes and reaches for it anyway. (laughs) I love that decision that that little kid makes in a, He's not going to go for something that's already wrapped. He's going to go for the sure thing and the bottle is it. So you little kid are my guy. What about you, John? Well, you know, there are a lot of potential guys here. Seymour Castle, who plays Saul the Butcher. The corrupt cop at the beginning, who plays Polly, who plays mm-hmm. Polly mm-hmm. in The Sopranos. I'm going to end up being Jose, I think. Jose got his hand blown off in the war, and he turns into a pyromaniac. And that kind of dovetails with my experiences. I mean, I never got my hand blown off in the the uh, indie rock irony wars of the late 90s, but mm. I feel like my, I think, I feel like part of me got blown off. Um, I have a little bit of like a f- phantom personality syndrome, but I'm a pyromaniac. And when he blew up that truck, even though all the money was getting burned up, I shared his excitement with how cool his explosion was. Yeah. It was a pretty cool explosion. Okay, guys. I think we have reached the point in the show where we select our next film. We don't select the film, though. The 120-sided dice does it. Yep. Here it is. You recently posted a picture of that. Never thought... I did. I did. Never thought I would see that. Here it is in its uh, in its dice cup. 
And let's go. There we go. It's rolling. Yeah, get your bets on the table. <laughs> 55. 55. 55 is a 2013 film directed by Peter Berg and set in Afghanistan. Uh-oh. It's Lone Survivor. Whoa. The, uh, that's the Mark Wahlberg picture, right? You know, we love a Mark Wahlberg picture. Hmm. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, guys, I'm looking looking forward to next week in a big way. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Feel like diving into the back catalog of Friendly Fire? Last year, your host watched Lebanon from 2009 a film about a lone tank and its infantry platoon during the first Lebanon War. And if you want to listen to more, you can also gain access to our bonus episodes by heading to MaximumFun.org join. For as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our pork chop feed, you'll gain access to all of the Maximum Fun bonus content. Don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. They say we must fight to keep our freedom. The Lord knows there's got to be a better way. Oh, sounds like somebody's having a nice big icy beverage over there. I've got a I've got a loud icy beverage. That's bad podcast form by me. I need a quieter oh, no. beverage. Adam likes iced coffee. I always forget that. Ben loves iced coffee. Is that right? Yeah. There's my iced coffee. It's like the main thing about him. Wow. <laughs> I don't really have anything else about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like doing a podcast with a couple of a couple of Karens. <laughs> How dare you? Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.